Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Simon. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose, very much tongue-in-cheek, the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. So, good morning, Peter. It's early January 2021, the year when, according to some, the United Kingdom has broken free from the shackles of Europe, or according to others, that the EU has unfortunately lost one of its more recalcitrant members. I'm talking about Brexit and the fact that we've moved on from Brexit itself to the end of the transition period. The UK and the EU have, at the last moment, as so often, agreed a trade deal that covers at least some part of the trade between the UK and the EU. So it's either a brave new world or it's a sad day. Why don't you kick off by telling me how you view things now that we've arrived at this state of affairs? First of all, Jonathan, Happy New Year. I know it's already two weeks into the new year and the new year has been quite active, but Happy New Year to you, and I'm very glad to be back online. I was looking at the various quotes that appeared in the various newspapers, both on the continent of Europe and in the UK, regarding Brexit. As far as the continent of Europe and the press reports are concerned, there is much less in the European newspapers about Brexit than there is in the British newspapers about Brexit, which is in itself not that surprising because the effect on the UK economy, society, financial markets is going to be more pronounced than the equivalent in the EU. But of all the quotes that I read in the papers, the one that really struck me was a quote that the FT brought from Sir Ian Duncan Smith, who was, a, as we all remember, one of the leaders of the Conservative Party of some years ago. He wasn't that successful, but he has always been an arch-Brexiter. And he said, astonishingly, I quote, I wish I was 21 years old today. I would be out there buccaneering, trading and dominating the world, end of quote. I found that quite interesting and I ref- reflected on it, on this, because is this true or do we feel that he's stuck in the 19th century when the UK indeed dominated the world outside Europe? So is it, as the FT puts it today, a yawning gap between exalted ambition and diminished power or is it the shape of things to come? Obviously, Brexit has been a negative for both sides of the equation. Presumably, the harmful effects will be more felt in a smaller economy compared with an economy of 400 or 450 people, which is Europe. But if Brexit, Jonathan, 
was supposed to be taking back control of UK laws, etc., and borders and fish and all the rest of it, is this just a display of macho English exceptionalism? Again, I quote the FT. Or is it going to allow the UK, as the Prime Minister Boris Johnson put it recently, to prosper mightily, having broken free from the shackles? I think I know what I think, Jonathan. I know what I think. But what do you think? I think I know what you think too, Peter. I think you have some sympathy with the uh, implied meaning of what the FT has been saying. But of course, FT has been a cheerleader for the EU for for many, many years. And all its coverage of the EU has been, uh, and Brexit has been, I would say, reflecting its underlying assumptions that, that the EU is a good thing and, and we should be part of it as the UK. I think my answer to your question is is in two parts. First, we don't know. It's only just happened, Brexit, in terms of the economic uh, impact. We don't know how it's going to play out. And I think the argument from the very beginning for more thoughtful members of UK society, if I can put it that way, not Sir Ian Duncan Smith, I don't put him in that category, I'm afraid. The more nuanced way to think about it, I think, is that it's early days and it will be what we make of it. I think there is some truth in the fact that uh, how well Brexit plays out for the UK will depend on what we make of it. We do have the, an opportunity to do some things differently than we've been doing before, and we are either going to take those opportunities or we're not. But the second point I would make is that, of course, Brexit is not really about economics. It never has been. I think all but the most uh, intransigent Brexiteers would accept that there is an economic cost to, to Brexit. I don't think anybody would dispute that, uh, and that's been very clear from the very beginning. But of course, Brexit hasn't really been about the economics. It's been about the politics of the situation. And from that point of view, I think you can argue that the UK has got itself in a more comfortable place than it was in the past. Being the member of the EU, one of the big three members of the EU that's always dragging its feet, trying to hold back the European project, being difficult, members of the awkward squad, and so on. We have moved on beyond that. And obviously, the hope is that as an outside member, an independent country, that the UK and the EU will continue to work together harmoniously on things of mutual interest, which I hope they will do. And I'm sure they will do because it's not in either side's interest. So I think I give it a kind of cautious welcome. We have got over the appalling political stagnation that Brexit produced. These years of ultimately pointless parliamentary debate about whether or not and how we should leave the EU. We've moved on from that. We have a government with a with a large majority and we have an opportunity or we had an opportunity at least until COVID came along to make something of it. So I think that would be my at least preliminary answer to your observations. Interesting. Very interesting indeed, because it reminds me a little bit of the situation after the war when you had the US and then you had Europe reeling from the war. And in between, you had Sir Winston Churchill, who on the one hand was very European and he wanted a pan-European movement. And he wanted the nations of Europe to get together and become stronger. However, he himself didn't want to be part of it. He wanted to be outside the two circles and he wanted to be where the two circles intersect. And that in many ways is where we are today. I lament Brexit because the British, even though they were the awkward squad, they were much more than that because they actually blocked a lot of 
they blocked many of the steps that were supposed to lead to ever closer union. And although they were in favor of enlarging the EU to cover the central European states, which are also described as the Eastern European states, but that's quite wrong. They're central European states. And that was very good. And people like Tony Blair pushed for that in order to get these companies from Poland all the way down to Slovenia out of the clutches of the Russians. We've talked about that before last year. But the British always prevented there being a deeper, not just wider, but a deeper cohesion in the European Union to achieve that ever closer union. So that, in, in that respect, they were the awkward squad. But there were a couple of very important aspects where they were not only not the awkward squad, the British, but they produced some real development in the European Union. And the fact that they've gone is bad news, potentially dangerous. What I'm talking about here is the single market. One of the biggest EU skeptics was Margaret Thatcher. But she was the one who forced the EU member states to shed their capital controls, to shed their foreign exchange controls, to introduce free movement of goods and of capital and of services, in theory at least, services. And she was instrumental in producing the Single European Act, which paved the way for the single market that we have today across the European Union. And I think that the trading mentality, think back of Ian Duncan Smith, who wants to buccaneer and domineer, in the sense that we need to have free trade in order to create prosperity and, by extension, security, the British were very important and very good and positive contributors to that. The second area which I want to mention quickly is with regard to free markets in financial services. And that is linked with, if you like, free movement of capital. You can see already, since the British left, you can already see the remaining EU beginning to be difficult about proper free market in financial services across the European Union, and especially the French, but the Germans too are beginning to interfere. So while the Europeans have the rules-based system and the British have the principles-based system, I am very much in favor of the principles-based system. And in that respect, the British will be sorely missed. So on balance, who's going to progress quicker in the next 10 years? You said it yourself, Jonathan, we'll have to wait and see. I think that's true. I think I would make a couple of comments on that, though. You're quite right to reference Margaret Thatcher and the Single European Act and so on. But of course, just to underline the point, that's not really what's been the animus driving the Brexit process or the political problems that have arisen for it, why the British have always been the awkward squad. It's the other aspects of ever closer union, which we, the UK has never liked. And that is the European Court of Justice, which is uh, unique, I think, as a, as a court in that it's... Uh, discussions are normally uh, held in private and it cannot be overturned except by treaty any there's no review of their judgments and that's always been a big problem for UK political classes where we have a completely different political tradition where we're very proud of our 
you know, Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentary uh, and the Whigs and the fact that we have moved to a parliamentary democracy and the courts are only part of the system. It's a complicated balance. We've never liked the European Court of Justice because of its arbitrary nature. And we don't like the single currency and we don't like monetary union in the form that it's being proposed. So I think those things from the UK's point of view, those are both positive things we will take out of leaving the EU. I think the issue about financial services is interesting. I mean, we have a lot of concerns over here that the role of the City of London may be affected by, uh, if you like, poaching and, and restrictive behaviour by the French in particular and the Germans. That's, that's certainly something that may happen. That may cost us something over time. And that is a shame. And you're right, you have lost the UK's sort of push for, on general, liberalised trading across the EU. But, you know, it's a trade-off. That's unfortunately, it's a trade-off. Always has been a trade-off. And at least we have got, if you like, if I can use this rather crude expression, we've got the monkey off our back in the sense of, you know, these long divisions over Europe, which have really, really ravaged our politics for the last few years. We can at least move on from that. I don't think that we will be rejoining the European Union anytime soon, even if the EU would let us back in, even if they would. And I think at the moment, despite what you might read in the media, there is a a slight element of a kind of feel-good factor around the place that we do at least have regained some control of our destiny. Now, of course, it's perfectly possible that we will mess that up. And uh, indeed, you know, Boris Johnson's government does seem to be making quite a good job of messing some things up. But that's for us to sort out. And from the point of Europe as a whole, well, I very much hope that it continues to develop. I do think it's, you know, decision-making processes are cumbersome. I do think there are some issues around its approach, you know, to Brexit. Monsieur Barnier has not endeared himself to anybody. And the fact that he was pushed aside at the last minute because he was taking a more intransigent line, I don't think that's really helped at all. So I think there's a lot to play for. But I, in the grand scheme of things, in the world scheme of things that you mentioned, you know, referencing Winston Churchill and so on, you know, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened. We're still partners in NATO. Instinctively, many of our values are similar to those in Europe. And I think we can continue to develop some kind of relationship in that way. I don't think that being excluded from the corridors of Brussels is an unmitigated disaster, though some people seem to think that it is. I might just mention one point, Peter, I might, before on the economics of it, because I do think the real point about Brexit is that actually there's a much bigger issues around the world in terms of economic progress for both the UK and the EU. You know, Brexit is a small part of that seen from a global context. I saw some figures the other day that the EU, over the last 20 years, since you moved closer towards monetary union and so on, their GDP is up by 90% over the last 20 years, and yet the global GDP is up by 160%. And Europe has a danger of being a little bit stuck in the slow lane, I think. I think that's a, an issue that we might also talk about. And as between how the UK and Europe divide up the sort of the trade cake, if you like, I think there's a much bigger issue around how does the EU, and to a lesser extent the UK, find a way back to more higher levels of growth than it's managed to do in the last 20 years. So I don't know how you would react to that, but that's a slightly different perspective, perhaps. Your points are completely valid, all of them. And that, in many ways, is the what used to be called the Eurosclerosis. The European Union has never managed to move out of its sclerotic state of affairs. And of course, if you want a proper, fully-fledged union, you need to have a banking union, you need to have a capital markets union, 
you need to have a transfer union. You need to have a common insolvency law and insolvency rules. And you've got to get together properly. And what is happening in the corridors of Brussels that you mentioned, and that is frustrating because it's been the state of affairs for years and years and years, is this clash between those who see Europe as an intergovernmentalist model, which is composed of an agglomeration of nation states, on the one hand, versus, on the other hand, those who believe that ever closer union means ever closer union and means the shedding or the seeding into a common pot of sovereignty and those elements that compose sovereignty. What's very interesting now is that the two main players in Europe are Mr. Macron and Angela Merkel. If you go forward, say, three to five years, you will have a potentially a new French president in the Élysée. And by the way, whatever you might think of Michel Barnier, he might be the resident in the Élysée. And I would venture that he's got a good chance of becoming president if he throws his hat in the ring. I defend him because in all these Brexit negotiations, he actually just did what he was told. He, he wasn't able to move beyond his mandate. And the French are very integrationists. They would like to move forward the speed of integration. Whereas the Germans, on the other hand, have got their foot on the brake because they prefer a federal model for Europe, which, by the way, is not at all what the British think it is. It's quite the opposite. It is the model of the uh, German Federal Republic. You should look at that. And that would be the blueprint for the German model. But again, in Germany, we've got this weekend an election for a new CDU leader. And the front runner, who's called Friedrich Merz, is not at all an integrationist. He doesn't agree with a transfer union. He doesn't want a capital markets union. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether we're just going to get more of the same in the next five to ten years, or whether in Europe we'll see, see some real progress, which could narrow this gap that you mentioned in relative rates of GDP growth. Now, the, obviously, the British, what they can do, if they go, want to go buccaneering and trading and all that, they can devalue their currency to the heart's content, or at least to the market's content, which is something that the component nation states of the European Union can't do. And I think that is seen by many Brexiters as a huge advantage. Just to touch on your comments about the European Court of Justice, I understand why the British didn't like that. But I'm saying that in the 21st century, every trade deal, and the British have just signed a trade deal with the EU, every trade deal needs an enforcement mechanism And that enforcement mechanism, which of course has been or is now part of that deal that they've done with the EU, but is not at all what Boris Johnson wanted it to be at the beginning. But every trade deal with an enforcement mechanism is going to result in the loss of the full sovereignty of local courts. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a trade deal with a trading partner and yet at the same time 
keep the sovereignty of your local courts for adjudication. That doesn't work. And when I look around the world, there are more and more economic blocks signing trade deals with each other. And that's the reason why I disagree with Duncan Smith, because in today's world, we are far removed from the buccaneering 19th century. And this is the real world that we live in. So who's going to have a faster GDP growth in the next 10 years? Will it be the UK, courtesy of devaluation, maybe? Or will it be the EU, courtesy of ever closer union? Or will it not? Time will tell, Jonathan. I mean, it could be neither, of course. That's a, that's a possibility that one might uh, conjure with. I mean, I agree. I don't think there are many people in the UK who think that we want to go back to the buccaneering days of empire. I mean, I think that's a sort of myth that is put around in the EU that somehow we're all still hankering after the days of the British Empire. We're not. There are some, and particularly those who perhaps go back to the Second World War, who might still have that, because at that time we did still have an empire, and it was crumbling, but we did have it. But that generation has basically moved on. They're either dying or they're in retirement or very close to it. And uh, Ian Duncan Smith might be representing that. But I think it's not just the younger generation who have a diff completely different perspective on the world. It's also, if you like, the baby boomer generation, I don't think does hanker after the empire in any way whatsoever. They actually are, if anything, a consumer generation. And I think that's one of the strongest cars that the EU had in the negotiations, because there will be some loss of consumer immunity by leaving Brexit. You know, there will be awkwardness at, at borders, possibly, or they'll be, you know, harder to travel abroad and so on. But I mean, I don't think those things are that particularly important in the grand scheme of things. In terms of the global trading order, you're right, there are trading deals being done all around the world. And in the last year, we have, you know, signed a few, but they're mostly just piggybacking on other people. And there always is an arbitration mechanism, you're absolutely right. But there is a difference between having one kind of arbitration mechanism and the ECJ, which, as I say, in legal terms, as I understand it, is a very different animal. You know, you cannot appeal against it. It's very difficult for the British to accept that as the arbitrating mechanism in any form or shape. And I think the You know, the issue with the Germans and the new leadership is also going to be very interesting, you know, because they have had issues with the ECJ and the ECB uh, for a number of years. So I'm not particularly wildly enthusiastic about the prospects for Europe economically. I think they have the benefits of union that they've achieved so far, but they also have the drawback of this rather top-heavy bureaucratic structure and the power plays that go on within Europe. They still go on within Europe between different parts of the EU, And it's not quite like the US or, or indeed Germany, where there are trade-offs and a lot of transfer payments and so on. That's not actually happening at the moment, uh, to the extent it might. And I think the EU has a particular weakness in the areas of technology, where you know the Americans have been very dominant and the Chinese are also getting very far advanced in that particular area. And the EU has relatively poor showing on that kind of global technology front. And that's where a lot of the productivity is going to come from. So I do have concerns about Europe as an economic entity, and uh, I'm not sure whether the continuing issues of friction, perhaps, between the French and German models will hold it back in practice. It might well do. But as I said, it's, it's basically all to play for. I don't think the UK is in any way potentially disadvantaged in this new trading world. We have quite a long tradition of trading going back many, many years. We are a trading nation, and we do have quite a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, one of the great surprises or pleasures to me in the last 20 years has been the fact that the UK has actually become a more entrepreneurial society. You can argue about how far it's become an entrepreneurial society, but if you look at the kind of startups and the technology companies that we've got in this country, 
uh, and the science we produce and our ability to exploit that economically has been massively increased over the last 20 years. Uh, I think we have got some things that we can look to where we will actually do quite well. And obviously, Adam Smith, you know, division of labor and so on, there are some things we'll be good at and some things other countries will be good at. But I think we've got a fighting chance of putting together a reasonable economic performance without necessarily having to rely on devaluation, which has always been, as you correctly point out, the historic UK way of, of managing crises. It's been the worst aspect of our economic policy for many years. We always just resort to devaluation as a way of fixing our short-term problems. And I hope we don't go back to that, but we may. Yes, okay. Well, we've talked about that subject before, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that subject again. And indeed, all the other points that you validly, very validly make about the comparative strengths and weaknesses from an economic point of view between the UK and the EU. But you threw in the name Adam Smith, which, of course, immediately points to the next question, which I'd like to ask you, because I'm very interested in your opinion on this. Has Boris Johnson traded UK independence for the breakup of the union? If you look at what's going on in Scotland, potentially in Wales, potentially in Northern Ireland, is this going to be one of the most damaging side effects to Brexit? I've been here listening a lot to some recent the conversations going on between what's going on in Scotland and the attitude of the British government. If you go fast forward 10 years, are you going to see Scotland being an independent country and once again a member of the EU? Are you going to see Northern Ireland merged into the Republic of Ireland? And are you going to see Wales as the remnant of the UK Union and the whole thing will have shrunk to a shadow of its former self. I'm very interested to hear what you think about that. Well, if you ask me to force me to bet on the outcome, I would say that neither of those two things will happen. Okay, let's be let's be clear about this. The one that it will happen sooner rather inevitably is Northern Ireland. I think that will eventually end up as united with the Republic of Ireland and that will be undoing, if you like, many centuries of uh, of political forces that uh, created that issue in the first place. So I think that's the, that's the one that has a more ineluctable logic to it. Uh, and I think it will eventually happen, if only because, you know, the minority Catholic population is growing faster than the, than the incumbent Protestant one. And there will have to be some kind of agreement in due course, hopefully peaceful, that will bring that about. And I think that's probably inevitable. It will be at some stage in this century. I wouldn't like to say when, probably not 10 years, probably longer than that. The Scottish situation is more interesting because it's, in one sense it's more immediate, in another sense I think it's uh, less likely. So politically, as we know, the SNP is dominant in Scotland and it's been very difficult for the Unionists to make uh, effective inroads into the SNP's dominance. And that is despite the fact that the SNP's record as the government, or the devolved government at least, has been pretty poor on most measures like education and health, where they have had devolved powers already, they haven't done very well. And economically, it's very difficult to tell how well Scotland is doing because it is massively subsidised by transfer payments from England in particular. Okay, so economically, if it's bad for the UK to leave EU, it's certainly going to be bad for Scotland to leave the UK if they choose to do that. There is an election for the Scottish Assembly next year, or no, later this year, sorry, 
Uh, and if the SNP win that, which seems quite likely, they will take that as a mandate for having a second referendum. I don't think that Boris Johnson will agree to that. But the danger of not agreeing to it is, of course, it will just build up further, if you like, resentment among those in Scotland who do want to have an independence vote and who think that they may actually win an independence vote. But I think it's quite a long way before we get there. And I also think that when it comes to the crunch, when Scottish voters are actually faced with the issue of do they actually want to vote to leave the United Kingdom, I think you might be surprised by the outcome. There'll be a lot of people who are in favour of the SNP or in favour of independence, sort of notionally, who, when it comes to the crunch, may well draw back. But I may be wrong. But there's lots of subsidiary issues, unfortunately, about what size a majority you might need in a referendum and so on to actually bring it about. And economically, I do think it would be very damaging for Scotland and it would be damaging for the UK, for England, as it will then become England and Wales, as it might then become, or England, Wales and Northern Ireland. But, you know, there are massive transfers between these countries. Scotland is a very small country in comparison to the UK. It's, you know, only five million people and England is getting on for 70 million people. So these are significant numbers, but they're not actually terminal to the health of the English and Welsh economy that would remain. So I think it's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, I think if you read the polls and so on, it says that the Scottish may well get to independence and they may well vote for it. And then they may well, you know, repent at leisure. I don't know. Personally, I think it would be unwise of them to do so. They will get more devolved government inevitably uh, as time goes by, just because of the political pressures. But we have an unhealthy one-party state in Scotland at the moment, and I think it's... Uh, uh, that is unfortunate. That's not a good situation wherever you go. So I'm not sure that I can really answer your question, but it's a sort of nuanced question. And I'm sure that Boris Johnson will try not to allow a Scottish vote if he possibly can. Yes, it is a nuanced question. And a one-party state is never good, especially when it's as, uh, let's say, anti-capitalist and anti-free market as the SNP is. I think they will interfere in the running of the economy to the detriment of, an, of a Scottish economy which is already in a very difficult situation. Uh, if you look at as you the, the subsidies that you mentioned, if you look at the oil price decline and so on. So what they have to play for is quite difficult. Um, I only asked you this question because I'm interested in what you think and that, that was very interesting what you said, but also because I think that now that Brexit is out of the way, this is going to come more into the centre of focus, this question about Scottish and Northern Irish secession from the UK. So we will, I'm sure that you and I will be talking about that quite a lot in the future, and I, and I look forward to that, Jonathan. One thing I can say you know, on that is that it is true that Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish leader, has been much more effective in public at uh, presenting herself as a competent administrator you know, in contrast to the rather shambolic uh, performance of Boris Johnson. There's no question about that, and people are wise to that. On the other hand, there is, as you say, these issues around the way that the SNP operates. And there is, of course, this issue of the inquest into the trial of the former SNP leader, Alex Salmond, which is thought to be going to be quite damaging to Nicola Sturgeon's reputation when it runs through to its course. We don't know. So this is a good example of politics. You know, it's all about events, dear boy, events. Things are going to happen, which we won't expect. It may have a significant effect on the way that people think in Scotland and in the UK. 
You know, the coronavirus, Nicola Sturgeons has done very well in terms of presentation. She's taken command of the thing and appears to be in total command of her brief. But in terms of the results, it's not actually significantly different. And I've noted noticed in the last few weeks that the four parts of the UK have been actually working much more harmoniously than in the early stages when there was a lot of political point scoring being made by the Scots and the Welsh and the, and the Irish comparing themselves to how the English were doing. So, but that's, you know, we've been living with that for years. It's not like it's a new departure, shall we say. Friendly rivalry. And I hope it doesn't defend into, uh, you know, secession of any of the member parts of the UK in the short term anyway. Yes, well, let's keep our fingers crossed. And meanwhile, the new year that has started is going to bring all sorts of, actually, as you say, events, dear boy, events. And by the time we have our next podcast there will be a new inaugurated US president in place and we can focus more on his plans and his ambitions in the years to come and whether that is going to be good, detrimental or neutral to our expectations as investors. So we can focus a little bit more on investment matters next time, albeit always from a big picture bird's eye point of view. Indeed, and I look forward to that very much. It's always interesting to, as we know, to share our different perspectives. And uh, quite often we arrive at the same conclusions, though, nonetheless, which is, uh, which is always satisfying. Thank you very much, and I look forward to our next session. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels, or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.